There are some people who think that they have to wash themselves before they come to God. How can you do that? Only God can cleanse you. So you come to him dirty. You ask him to cleanse you, and if he cleanses you, you're clean. Welcome to The Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to The Fox Den. Today, I'd like us to take a look at a biblical confession of sin. And you'll find this confession of sin in Psalm 51. Now, before we begin, I need to give you some background information on Psalm 51. And in order to do this, we need to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, during this time, David was the king of Israel. And verse 1 gives us the time. It was spring. But notice what else it says. It was the time when kings go out to battle. Now, that's actually a very significant point that they're making because of what follows. You see, verse 1 then tells us what happened. King David sent his general and his army out to battle. However, David remained back in Jerusalem. Then it says that David was on the roof of his house, and he noticed a woman bathing. And then David asked about this woman. Well, this was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And after inquiring about her, he had his messengers bring her to him. And then he got her pregnant. I think it might be helpful for us at this point to take a look at Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 17 lays out the Ten Commandments. And the Seventh Commandment states, You shall not commit adultery. So David has violated the Seventh Commandment of God's holy law. And that's not a good thing, especially for the king of Israel. Now at this point, I think it might be helpful for us to take a look at Uriah. Who is Uriah? We don't know much about him, but we do know a few details. First, we already know he's the husband of Bathsheba. Second, we know that he's a Hittite, which means Uriah wasn't an Israelite. In fact, he was part of the people that the Israelites were supposed to drive out of the land. But then we also see that Uriah is a soldier in David's army. And we know this for several reasons. Some of those details we'll see in a moment. But David tells Joab, the leader of his army, to send Uriah to him. So Joab sends Uriah to David, and he returns to Jerusalem. You can almost see the wheels in David's head spinning. You can see what he's up to. He just got Uriah's wife pregnant, and now he's calling him home to Jerusalem? He's trying to hide his adultery. So David asks Uriah how Joab is doing and how the war is going. And then he tells Uriah to go to his house. But Uriah is a good soldier. He refuses to go home, but he sleeps at the king's door instead. And then when David asks him why he didn't go home, he basically says, well, how am I supposed to go home when my fellow soldiers are sleeping in open fields? In other words, if they're sleeping in such conditions, how can Uriah go and enjoy the comforts of home? So David then gets Uriah drunk. I suppose he's hoping that he's going to lose his inhibitions and go home. But he didn't. So at this point, David sends him back to the battle. But David does something even more evil. He gives a command to Joab, the leader of his army, and he tells Joab to engage in battle with Uriah at the front with the hardest fighting, and then draw back so that Uriah is out there by himself and he gets killed. We see this in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 11. In other words, David has Uriah killed. This faithful soldier faithful to David, faithful to Israel. David gets his wife pregnant, 
and then sets him up to be killed. This is David, you know, the man after God's own heart. This is the guy who did this evil act. I'm stressing this point for a reason. David is often used as an example of us to follow. We're often encouraged to be like David, a man after God's own heart. But do you really want to be an adulterer and a murderer? David's just like you and me. He's not a stellar example for us to follow. And what is revealed here is his sin. And it's a heinous sin. Or should I say heinous sins? Now let me take a slight detour at this point. God honored Uriah. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 lists all the fathers from Abraham to Joseph, and only five women are mentioned. But notice in verse 6 that Bathsheba is mentioned, but not by name. Look at what it says. David fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary by name but he refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. I believe this is like this to honor him. After all, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are mentioned as an honor, so I think the same is true for Uriah. Well, David thought he got away with his sin, but God let him know that he didn't. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts David with his story. And he says, there was a poor man who had a female sheep, and he treated the sheep like a child, like his own daughter. And then there was another man who was wealthy and had lots of livestock. And he had a visitor, yet he was unwilling to take a sheep from his own flock. Instead, he took the poor man's sheep, and he slaughtered that sheep to feed his guest. And then hearing this story, David was enraged. And he said that that man deserved to die for what he did. And he should pay four times of what he took because this man had no pity. And then Nathan says something stunning. Take a look at verse 7. Nathan says to David, you're the man. You're the guy who stole the poor man's sheep. This is the framework of Psalm 51. David has been confronted by Nathan concerning his sin, and Psalm 51 is his response. Now, as we go through Psalm 51, I'm not going to go into depth. I'm going to try to glean from this psalm to encourage you. So take a look at Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. And David makes three requests. He asks God to have mercy on him. And notice the basis of God's mercy, his steadfast love. A love that is constant. A love that is firm. A love that is unshakable. You see, God's love isn't whimsical. It's not unstable. God's love is firm. It's unmovable. And then David also asks that God wash him and cleanse him. Now, these two are related. These are basically the same thing said differently. And this is known as a parallelism. And this is a feature of Hebrew poetry. It'd be like me saying something like, I'm going to the store for groceries. I'm driving to Walmart to get some food. Now, perhaps this isn't eloquent, but I basically said the same thing in two different ways. Well, that's a type of parallelism. And we're going to see that several times here in Psalm 51. And then David gives a reason for his request in verses 3 and 4. He knows his sin. And we see another parallelism here in verse 3. But look at what he says in verse 4. He sinned against God alone. Don't you find that strange? He had Uriah killed, but here he says that he sinned against God alone. What does he mean by that? 
Well, God alone is the lawgiver and the judge. Uriah was a victim of David's sin, but Uriah is not the lawgiver nor the judge. So David violated the law of God, and so therefore he sinned against God alone. That doesn't take away from the heinous thing that he did to Uriah, but David violated God's law, not Uriah's law. So against God alone, he sinned. Then from verses 7 to 12, David makes 12 more requests. And the theme of these requests is cleansing, healing, restoration. In verse 7, we see another parallelism. Purge me and cleanse me. But notice what he says. He pleads that God would purge him and wash him. If God does this, he will be clean. He will be whiter than snow. David recognizes that God is the source of his cleansing. David can't cleanse himself. He can't wash himself and be clean. God is the only one who can do this, and David recognizes that. I mean, think about it. Left to himself, David sinned. So he pleads to God for cleansing and washing because God alone can do that. And if God purges and cleanses, then indeed David is clean. And that's the same with us. We cannot wash ourselves. We cannot clean ourselves. Only God can do that. There are some people who think that they have to wash themselves before they come to God. How can you do that? You can't cleanse yourself. It's impossible. Only God can cleanse you. So you come to him dirty and you plead to him for mercy. You ask him to cleanse you, and if he cleanses you, you're clean. And yes, if you ask him to cleanse you, he will cleanse you. He's not stubborn. He's gracious. The Apostle Paul concurs with David. Take a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. You were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that washed you, sanctified you justified you. You didn't do this on your own. God did the work. Again, David knows that God alone is the source of his cleansing. Then in verse 8, David asks God to allow him to hear joy and gladness. It seems that David is so struck by his guilt that he has no joy. It's as if joy and gladness are far off, and he longs simply to hear it. And then he asks for healing. He asks that The bones that God has broken rejoice. Now, David knows who he's talking to. This is a holy God who hates sin, and David recognizes his sin. And he pleads that God would hide his face from his sin and blot out his sin. And then in verse 10, David asks that God would create in him a clean heart and renew in him a right spirit. Again, God alone is the only one who can do this. David is totally incapable on his own of doing this, and he knows this. That's why he's pleading to God for this. And then next, David pleads for God's mercy, pleading that God would not cast him out of his presence or remove his Holy Spirit from him. And we're getting a glimpse of David's heart. We already know that his heart is evil. That's why he committed adultery, and that's why he had Uriah killed. However, we see a regenerate heart. We see a a humble heart. We see a heart that seeks for God, begging him for forgiveness and restoration. Now, David's not praying to God and pleading for his mercy because he's trying to escape hell. David is a sinner seeking to remain with his merciful God. You see, he really is a man after God's own heart. He's praying this because he loves God. 
He recognizes his sin. He recognizes what he has done is evil in the sight of God. And he's pleading to God to stay with him. That God wouldn't kick him out. That God would extend mercy to him. At this point, let me again direct your attention to Paul. Hundreds of years later, Paul is talking about the same thing in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. And as Paul describes himself in those verses, we see a person that struggles with sin as he seeks to obey God. You see, Paul's describing himself. There he says that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. He's talking about himself. It's the Apostle Paul's struggle with sin. You see, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, that's the Christian life, struggling with sin till the day we die. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 25. He serves the law of God with his mind, but with his flesh he serves the law of sin. You see the struggle? He's fighting with sin, but with his mind he serves the law of God. He desires to obey God, and yet he sins. Well, this is David's struggle. This is why David fell into sin, because though he's a man after God's own heart, He's still a sinner. Then David's final plea is that God would restore the joy of his salvation and uphold him with a willing spirit. After David makes his request, he describes the outcome in verse 13. He will teach transgressors the ways of God, and sinners will return to him. You see, this is the power of the gospel. Again, let me take you back to Paul. Hundreds of years later, Paul wrote that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Going back to Psalm 51, David then describes another outcome of God's rescue in verse 14. If God delivers him, David will proclaim God's righteousness. He then makes another request in verse 15. There he asks God to open his mouth so that he will declare his praises. Again, his focus isn't on escaping hell. He's focused on the glory and honor of God. In verse 16, David explains why he's asking for an open mouth to praise God. It's because God doesn't want some empty sacrifice. David has the sacrificial system in mind. And there in the sacrificial system, the priest would bring an animal to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. And there was no power in these sacrifices. The blood of these animals did absolutely nothing. The power was in Christ, and these sacrifices pointed to him. But people would bring these sacrifices as a means to appease God, thinking that these sacrifices would somehow make God happy. But their hearts were often not involved. And God mentions this in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. People honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. God isn't looking for some token to get him off your back. He's not looking for you to make some sacrifice like throwing money in the plate or volunteering at a soup kitchen. He wants you to believe him. He wants you to love him. Now, don't think of God as some codependent, lovesick teenager who will do anything for love. He's not desperate for your love. Think of God like a husband who desires the love of his wife, even though she gives her heart to other men. You see, God is like the husband who loves his wife. So as David says, God doesn't want sacrifices. If he did, David would bring it. What God really wants from us is to be sad and remorseful for our sin. 
You see, our sin is a violation of God's holy law. You come to God not to appease Him, but to seek forgiveness and restoration, to seek Him because you love Him. And when you come to Him on these terms, He will never cast you out. God will not despise the broken and contrite heart. And finally, David requests that God do good in Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem, and then God will delight in right sacrifices. I believe this is really a prophetic prayer concerning Christ. He is the right sacrifice that God delights in, and he is the one the sacrifices point to. We can glean a pattern for the confession of our sins. First, don't be afraid to approach God seeking his mercy. In other words, come to him. Jesus offered the same invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And if you come to him, he will give you rest. And then second, acknowledge your sin and the affront that it is to God. He already knows your sin. Just because you don't confess it to him doesn't mean he doesn't know it. So be truthful. Acknowledge your sin before God. And then third, ask that God would forgive you for your sins and ask him to cleanse you. And then ask God to renew in you a spirit that loves him. And then finally, ask God to reconcile you to himself. So why would you follow this pattern? Is God going to kick you out of the kingdom? No, but I think this pattern is honest and humble. It acknowledges you as the violator of God's law, and it calls upon his mercy. And it also rightly acknowledges what God is like. Merciful. Is God going to refuse to grant you grace and mercy? No. Never. Think of being a parent. When my daughters do something wrong, they don't have to come to me in order for me to forgive them. I'll forgive them because they're my daughters. However, I desire them to come to me and to ask for my forgiveness. And the main reason why is because it's honest and it's restorative. There's something therapeutic and healing. I don't think that's a good word, but there's something healing When somebody comes to you and says, will you please forgive me? We encourage our daughters to do that because it reconciles you. It restores that relationship. Now, don't misunderstand me here. One difference between me and God is that he is the lawgiver. He is the righteous judge. Sin is a violation of his holy law with a severe judicial punishment. My daughter's disobeying me is not a violation of my law. It's a violation of God's law. So when I forgive them, I'm not really forgiving them for a sin they've committed against me, but as their father, I have certain responsibilities, and I can't protect them if they don't obey me. And so when they disobey me, they're making it difficult for me to fulfill my responsibility. So when I'm talking about forgiving my daughters, I'm not talking about them violating my law, but really usurping my responsibility. But one of the reasons why God can forgive all your sins now is because they've been paid for. You see, they have been forgiven. So then why would you come to God and ask for his forgiveness? Because it's honest. It's humble. You see, David's sins were already forgiven, and yet he comes to God pleading for his forgiveness. How do I know that they were forgiven? Because of the sacrificial system and what it pointed to. Christ, who would one day take all of David's sins on himself and pay for them on the cross. He would die the death that David deserved. So we ask for God's mercy and forgiveness because it's truthful and it rightly acknowledges who God is. doesn't mean that we don't have the forgiveness and mercy yet. We do have it. 
But when we ask for his forgiveness, when we plead for his mercy, it's truthful and rightly acknowledges who God is. Merciful, forgiving, gracious. Now let me conclude here by saying there's nothing magical about this pattern that we have seen in Psalm 51. I don't want this pattern to bog you down and become some kind of incantation, thinking that if you don't do it this way, that you haven't done it the right way. I don't want you to think that God's not going to forgive you unless you follow this pattern. But I do think this is a helpful pattern for us to follow. And I think this review of Psalm 51 shows us really what God is looking for, a heart that loves him and a heart that is grieved because we violated his holy law. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.